0: Well, good morning. good morning. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse number 8 is where we're going to be reading in just a moment. 1 Corinthians thirteen eight. So good to see everybody here this morning and looking forward to a, a, time, a good time in God's Word. We are going to be finishing up chapter 13, which of course everybody knows is a chapter on love. And you must remember that uh, it is nestled right in the, in the midst of Paul's teaching about the spiritual gifts. The spiritual gifts, if you remember, they were having trouble. They were not using love when they uh, used their spiritual gifts. And so Paul, just right in the middle, uh, gives us a wonderful chapter on love that you hear at weddings and, and Valentine's Day and all those different uh, kinds of times. We're going to see that Paul now, in his discussion on love, transitions his argument about spiritual gifts, and he begins to teach that spiritual gifts will pass away because they aren't needed. But love is the greatest thing because love is eternal. Spiritual gifts are needed now, but they will not be needed in eternity, the question is what makes love eternal? Have you ever wondered that question? What makes love eternal? The answer is very simple. 1 John 4:16 tells us that love is a person, so we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. For what? God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Since God is love, love is everlasting. That that's, uh, goes without saying. The problem is with the Corinthians, they were focused on things that pass away. And that's a constant battle for every believer not to get overly focused on things that will pass away, temporal things. The Corinthian church was taking on the cultural ideals of its day as opposed to piercing the culture with their witness, the culture was like leaven infecting the church. They they began to value the more prominent gifts that gain attention, and they did not value love. As a result, they were involved in lawsuits. They ignored the poorer believers and, and allowed them to go hungry. They celebrated incest in the church, and they were overrun by pride, and many of these things are the the common parts of the Corinthian culture. We as a church need to be on guard against encroaching worldliness as well. We are far more affected by our culture than we care to admit and that we can even conceive. We are products of our culture. I'm concerned that many of us have abandoned the biblical idea of love for a concept of love that's in the popular culture that is unbiblical. And the hallmark of our cultural, culture's definition of love is niceness. If you say nice words, you are loving. But niceness as a whole, niceness as a whole is the opposite of loving believe it or not. Jesus wasn't always nice, but he was loving. When the disciples are standing at the gates of hell above Caesarea Philippi, it was not nice for him to look at uh, Peter and say, get thee behind me, Satan, but it was the most loving thing he could say. When John the Baptist saw all the religious leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and the Jews coming down to watch his baptism and to critique his baptism, it was not nice for him to look at them and call them, you brood of vipers. But it was loving. The most loving teaching that Jesus could give in Matthew 24 was not, hey, you know, you guys are right. That that temple is beautiful. Instead, it was loving for him to say there's not going to be one stone left upon another. And so we have to be very careful that we have not just taken on the world's conception of love, which, if I can put it, one one of the ways we can manifest it is niceness. Because God loves the church. He commanded leaders to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. The church is to rebuke those who stray from sound doctrine. Church discipline sounds so unloving in our culture. Church discipline sounds not nice, doesn't it? It's not nice, but it's loving. It's proof that we love God when we practice church discipline and that we love souls of the ones being disciplined as well. And so here we have in in 1 Corinthians 13... 8 to 13, the end of it, we've already covered a lot of this stuff in, in the previous sermons, but now he transitions and he argues that the enduring quality of love makes it the greatest gift. It is his gift above all gifts. And in contrast to love's permanence, spiritual gifts are temporary partial elementary. So let's stand together as we read God's Word. Verse number 8 of 1 Corinthians 13 says this, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Lord, we thank you that love endures. We thank you that you are love. And we thank you that you have given us the gift of love and that we can become more loving. I pray now that as we look through this somewhat difficult passage, that you'll give us an understanding of what you are trying to tell us through the pen of Paul. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you. So let me summarize Paul's argument for you as we get into it. Here it is, ready? Since no, love never fails, it's the greatest gift. Since love never fails, love is the greatest gift. Let's just uh, look at how he develops this point. The first thing he does in verse number eight, if you look at w- with me, is that he, he tells us that gifts are temporary. Such interesting language here. He starts off the verse by saying, love never ends. In reality, the word there is fail, falls. Some translations say love never fails. The correct word is falls. Love never falls. You know, before the days of bulldozers and earth movers and dynamite and heavy equipment, roads were narrow paths. And some of the ones in the Roman Empire were very famous for how treacherous they were. There was a road uh, very famous, uh, going to Athens that most likely Paul walked across. But some of these some of these uh, roads that went through the mountains, you were walking right along the precipice. And every now and then, with rain or something like that, uh, the, the roadbed would just suddenly fall away. You know, the path, it's just a path that would just fall away. And the idea here is, is the exact same thing. That's the idea. Love will never fall away love will never collapse it never it never fails and never falls it never will collapse like these ancient roadbeds but what about the gifts look at what he continues to say as for prophecies they will pass away as for tongues they will cease as for knowledge it will pass away now let me show you the literal language here it's this prophecies will be discarded tongues will cease knowledge Will be discarded. Now, that's very fascinating language. The language of Paul is important in this verse because he is pointing out that tongues are different than prophecies and knowledge. The word d- is discarded. The verb for tongues is cease, and it's in the middle voice. And in the original language, the middle voice meant that it was an internal thing. And so the ceasing of Tongues is an internal thing. It happens to itself. It's, it's like it's a self-causing action. It seems that God gave the gift of tongues with a built-in stopping place. It, um, the gift will stop by itself is almost what Paul is saying. It's like a battery. It's got a limited supply of energy and a limited Lifespan, and when those limits are reached, the activity automatically ends. However, prophecies and knowledge will be stopped by something outside themselves. There's a there's a big difference in the language, and it's very important that we understand that why he's saying tongues will stop by itself, prophecies and knowledge will be stopped by something outside themselves, and we'll see what that is in just a moment. The distinction is is uh, inarguable now why would that be why would tongues cease by itself well tongues is a sign gift Uh, the gift of tongues was given to the apostles as a sign from God that their message was from him when was the very first sign gift pentecost And they preached the gospel, and everybody understood in their own language, you see. And so it was a sign gift. When you look through the New Testament, tongues are only mentioned in the earlier New Testament books. 1 Corinthians is one of those earlier books. Most of the books in the New Testament do not mention tongues. Paul mentions it only in this one letter, and James And Peter and John and Jude make no mention of it at all. And if you look through the book of Acts, tongues is not mentioned after Acts chapter number 19 and verse number 6. And it seems clear from the New Testament record itself that tongues not only ceased to be an issue, but it ceased to be practiced well before the end of the apostolic age. And the apostolic age, let me remind you, uh, means the time when the apostles were alive. And the last one, was the Apostle John who died somewhere around 96 A.D., okay? And and so nowhere in the epistles is it commanded or are believers enjoined to exercise the gift of tongues. Did you know that? If it were necessary, it would be enjoined, it would be commanded. And since um, tongues was also used as a sign of judgment against unbelievers, did you know that? We're going to see that in the next chapter, chapter number 14, but I want to read two verses from 1 Corinthians 14. It says this, in the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, look at this conclusion, tongues are not a sign for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. And if you look at the context there, he's saying that the gift of tongues is a gift, a sign of judgment against unbelievers, particularly unbelieving Jews. So it's a sign of judgment. Another thing that you you might find interesting is that uh, once the New Testament was written, there was no need to verify the message of preaching because Scripture is its own verifier. There's no need for miracles, and there's no need for tongues because Scripture now is its own verifier. And Scripture tells us this. In fact, there is no mention of tongues in the early church fathers. The first we matter of fact, we have a letter written in 110 A.D., to the church in Corinth by a church father, no mention of tongues whatsoever. No mention in the early church fathers, first 400 years of Christianity, of the gift of tongues. There is one mention of the gift of tongues by a heretic in the early church in the the third century, he mentions tongues. Otherwise, it's not even mentioned. And so for over 1,800 years, the gift of tongues, along with all the other miracle gifts, was unknown. In the life and doctrine of the Orthodox Church, and then in the 19th century, there began to be a a wave of tongues in the Catholic Church, and it was in the fringe parts of the Catholic Church, and eventually, at the turn of the 20th century, tongues became a major um, emphasis within the Holy Movement, Holiness Movement, and particularly. A large section was developed within Pentecostalism. The charismatic movement, which began in the 1960s, carried the practice of tongues beyond even traditional Pentecostalism in the many other uh, denominations, churches, groups, both Catholic and Protestant. Um, And I'm going to say this, it's going to be a little bit controversial. We'll talk about it next week or next time more, next chapter. But I believe it fills the void in true spiritual living with a false experience. If tongues were necessary for the church, why for 1,800 years was it not around? You see. Well, uh, that, that's, I did want to say that about tongues, and, and it ceases on its own. There's another proof that, that tongues ceased early in apostolic age, and it's in verses 9 and 10. Look at verses 9 and 10. And see what they says. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. Now, what two gifts are those? Knowledge and prophecy, right? What is not mentioned? Tongues. Tongues is not mentioned. We know in part, we prophesy in part. When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Simply put, the value of prophecy and knowledge must be judged in light of eternity. Notice tongues is not even mentioned. Why? Because they've already ceased. There's no need to mention tongues because they've already ceased. Knowledge and prophecy, though, have continued. So the gifts are are partial. Tongues were more temporary than the other spiritual gifts, but even the other gifts, such as prophecy and knowledge, they will cease. When? When will they cease, according to Paul? When the perfect comes, Now, right now, our knowledge and our prophecy and prophecy being defined as preaching of the gospel, preaching of the word of God, they are partial and imperfect. But we have, and get this, this is so important, we have everything that God wants us to know about him in his word. Did you know that? We have everything he wants us to know about him in his word, But not only is that not all there is to know about God, but we have so much of it that we can't even grasp. This is just, this word that we have is just partial knowledge of him. But this partial knowledge is more than we can even comprehend. I was thinking about that this week, and I started rolling back in my ministry. I I estimate, this is a conservative estimate, you ready? between all the degrees that I have and all the sermons and lessons and, and everything else that I've, I've um, preached, that I've spent 30,000 plus hours studying the Bible. Lanny, you're probably 50,000 or more studying the Bible. And I think you'll agree with me, I feel like I've only scratched the surface of what there is in the Bible. Would you agree with me? That you're, well, maybe you're saying, well, oh, yeah, Pastor, you've only scratched the surface. But, <laughs> but anyway... There's so much to know. The last two weeks, my own personal Bible study and studying for, uh, I'm teaching a class on Christ in the Old Testament in small groups. I, my mind has just been blown by the things that I'm connecting that I've never connected in the previous 30 years of studying. And it will continue. And I believe that when we get to heaven for all of eternity, because God is eternal, we will learn about him through his word, and through other ways. And so our knowledge is partial and imperfect. But the Lord has provided all the knowledge that we need in order to know and to serve him more and better every day. In fact, we can't even comprehend it. And yet, the written word, as I said, does not even begin to exhaust the truth of who God is. Isn't that wonderful? Heaven will not be boring. And if studying about God is boring to you, then I'm going to just say flat out, there is a problem in your life because God is more exciting than there anything else in this world. Our knowledge and our prophecy are partial. You know, there's a, there's a, in the Arabic speaking world, a pious person is expected to wash his or her hands uh, before they pray, wash their hands with water. But they they but if once traveling through the desert and no water is available and it was time for their prayers, they had a a solution for that. The the worshiper was allowed to get down and to use sand and to wash, go through the motions of washing their hands with sand. And they had a proverb, and here's the proverb: you ready? When water is available, the sand washing stops. And when you have access to the real thing, the partial stops, meaning prophecy and knowledge, you see. So our knowledge and our prophecy is sand. And when the Lord comes, or we meet him in death, our partial knowledge will be discarded in the light of his perfect knowledge. Prophecy, will be discarded because we will now be completely transformed to be like our Savior. And so when Paul says that the per, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away, he's speaking of the eternal state. And some of us will will reach the eternal state through death, and some of us may have the privilege of reaching the eternal state through his coming. Praise the Lord. So the gifts are partial. The gifts are not for the mature. Now look at verse number 11 and I'll explain what I'm talking about. Paul gives another parable here. Look at the parable. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. All right, that's pretty easy to understand, isn't it? Except that there's a, a little bit of a caveat there. The word for child, the word translated child, is not the most common form of the word child, which is paideia. Paideia means child. The word actually is napios, and napios is a word that oftentimes is used to speak of immature adults. So it seems that what Paul is saying is when I was a new Christian and my knowledge of Christ and Christianity were childish, I was engaged in debates Maybe debates over tongues and prophecy and knowledge, you see. And and these are impermanent. And he's telling the Corinthians that their fighting over spiritual gifts proves their immaturity. And we must move beyond immature preoccupation with ourselves as children are apt to do, aren't they? Children are are preoccupied with themselves, and we tend to be that way. And we need to learn to consider that love for and service of others is God's purpose behind the spiritual gifts. And so, tongues, prophecy, knowledge, and all the other spiritual gifts that we, we looked at are not for ourselves, they're for everybody else. And so, what we need to do, dear believer, is put away childish thinking that's self centered and put on mature thinking, which is loving. And others focused. He's telling them to grow up, to quit fighting over childish things that are impermanent. And for his part, he's saying, I have grown up, and I've realized that the, these gifts that last are faith, hope, and love. And so let's look at verse number 12 and learn that all knowledge is dim and partial, but will become complete. Look at what he says another parable. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall be know fully, even as I have been fully known. Do you know how they made mirrors in ancient times? Polished brass. Polished brass. Did you know that, that Corinth was famous for its brass makers? That's one of the famous things about Corinth. Not only this... But we, have rec- we actually have records of this. We have murals of this. The brass mirror makers were so skillful. Let's say somebody wanted a mirror made, and they happened to be a follower of Aphrodite. They could polish that mirror and then lightly etch the image of Aphrodite in that mirror. And so when the person would wake up in the morning and look in the mirror, they would see Aphrodite's image and they would be in the presence of the gods. Most likely that's the reference that Paul is making here is that we see dimly. And what happens to the brass back in that day? It would tarnish over time, wouldn't it? And so the image of Aphrodite and their own image would, would, would be very dim. And, and that's how it is with us. Until Jesus Christ returns, at best, we see things dimly as a faint reflection of those glories which are to come. And that's because of our sin nature and our lack of understanding, isn't it? But when, when the age to come dawns, when in its fullness, Jesus comes back and we see him face to face... We'll see everything fully and completely. You see, we look at the Word of God right now, and the Word of God is a perfect reflection of Jesus Christ, but our understanding of the Word of God is at best imperfect. And so we imperfectly see Jesus in that mirror, and we imperfectly see ourselves. You know, I often tell people, and it's a very common phrase, the problem with blind spots is what? We're blind to them. We're blind to our own blind spots. We can't see them. And so we look into this mirror, and we vaguely see Jesus. We can't see him as well as he we could, and we can't see ourselves as well as we should, right? But when Jesus Christ comes in all his glory, we will see him perfectly in all his majesty and glory, and guess what else? We will see ourselves perfectly. But praise be to God at that moment we will be perfected and have no sin nature. Amen? And so what we see in ourselves will be a reflection of Jesus Christ. On that great day, I cannot wait for that great day. On this side of eternity, our knowledge of ourselves and our knowledge of God is partial, but one day the perfect will come and it will all be taken care of. Then he says, verse number 13, in conclusion, The greatest of these is love. Love is eternal. Now, faith, hope, love, abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Paul mentions the three greatest spiritual virtues, faith, hope, and love. And and actually, faith and hope are encompassed by love, which believes all things and hopes all things, right? Because faith and hope will have no purpose in heaven They won't be equal to God. Now, I'm not going to go into a very complex discussion right now of of what that hope does not fade in heaven. You know, we we know the Bible says that uh, we don't hope for what we see. We hope for what we don't see, right? But uh, faith and hope abide in heaven. But the greatest of these is love. Love is the greatest not only because it's eternal, because even in this temporal life where we now live, love is supreme. Love is the greatest, not only because it will outlast all the other spiritual gifts, it's beautiful and necessary because it's, it's also most godlike. Christ encompasses all the spiritual gifts, but he is love, the Bible says. The best way to love our brothers and sisters as God commands us is to look at the cross. Do you look at the cross? I I just, in in reading the last couple days, just thanking the Lord Jesus for saving my soul. I'm so undeserving of it. And the cross is such a horrible thing. Jesus died for all my sins. Including those times I have failed to love my brothers and sisters in Christ as God commands me. Whatever love I show to my neighbor is to mirror that love that God has shown to me in the shed blood and wounds of a sacrificial Savior. Love for my neighbor can arise only when I behold the cross of Jesus Christ and consider his death for my sins. And so as Paul made it clear In this wonderful chapter, the gifts of the Spirit will cease when the perfect comes, and we finally reach maturity. Faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest of these is love. Dear believer, where is your mind? Is it on temporal things that pass away, trying to get ahead, trying to uh, find the next... next big thing here on earth or are you focused on on christ and are you being humbled by his great love and in turn practicing that love with one another lord i thank you for this wonderful chapter we thank you that love abides and remains because christ is love lord we um, we see everything so dimly we're so sure of ourselves though we're looking, in, we're looking dimly into a mirror, seeing Christ dimly, but we are so sure of what we know. And yet, Lord, one day, our minds will just be open to the sheer wonder and awe and glory of who Jesus Christ is. May we, Lord, long for that day, and in the meantime, Love others as Christ has loved us. In his name we pray, amen.